Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome back to a final episode of Season 2 for Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am the sexiest podcast host in America, and with me today is the man who recently started selling farts in a jar on the internet, Mr. Jason Peters! What's up, Ryan? How's it going, everybody? That was a good one. How's it going, yeah. buddy? Ah, it's going well, dude. I am living on that sweet, sweet fart in a jar money. Uh, Hell yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah, dude. You know, uh, obviously, uh, as you can expect from someone who hosts a show like Esoterica Cinema, I'm hugely into trash TV and reality TV. Uh, none more so than those <laughs> lovable housewives of wherever, right? And uh, so, yeah, you know, taking a t- tip from the one from either Chicago or Orange County, started selling her farts. Uh, I did the same. Um, however, I must admit, uh, we've already been shut down. It was it was nice while it lasted. Uh, but apparently, oh, I'm sorry yeah, to hear that. Yeah, so apparently uh, my gas is so bad uh, that certain people have been admitted to the hospital and uh, <laughs> then the FDA stepped in and there was a huge fine associated with it. And uh, yeah, so now was, I suppose I really the FDA really... meaning uh, is that the, the, the fart and drug association? Hey, absolutely. One hundred percent. Yes, it's a subsidiary of the Food and Drug Administration. Um, it's actually uh, just to keep the scatological humor going, though. Uh, the FDA in this <laughs> instance actually stands for Fart and Doo-Doo Association. OK, so, got yeah. it. Um, and yeah, so, uh, they (laughs) stepped in and, uh, there was uh, some money exchanged and now we're still selling the farts under, it's being advertised as mine, but (laughs) between you and me listeners, they're actually not my farts anymore. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) Wow. We're outsourcing gas. I like it. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, actually a funny thing. So the actual, the, the parent FDA food and drug administration, um, actually, apparently a long time ago, banned human uh, methane uh, excretions. Um, it turns I couldn't out that, understand why. Yeah, yeah, no yeah, idea. No, it turns out it's horrible for the system. So most of the time, like if you ever buy something that is uh, either marketed as human farts or smelling as human farts, it's typically uh, methane drilled from the ground and just passed okay. off as human farts. So kind of they should. Um, you should look people behind the, the curtain uh, there for you. You should look into the pork and beef industry. Maybe team up. I hear that uh, that that methane is doing some harm to our ozone and this and that. And uh, maybe you could bottle some of that. Do some good for the environment. It's uh, ecological, organic uh, farts. Yeah, you know, here's the problem, though, is that most of the people see everybody says that they, quote, never open the jar. But that's a bunch of crap, dude. So really, all it's doing is it ends up being a sort of methane exchange. (laughs) (laughs) It's more of just like a methane exchange program, because as soon as they open it up, it it dissipates back into the environment. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, So they just had to put a kibosh on that. 
So, yeah, I wonder how that works out if you breathe in someone's farts and then you fart their fart and then bottle that. Like, I wonder if there's a market for that, like a, a, a fart of a fart. I was going to say, it sounds like you're describing the turducken of bodily gas. A fart yes. within a fart. This is this is what we need to work on. Etsy, I'm coming for you. We're going to get on Etsy and we're going to uh, we're going to sell turducken farts. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never ever going to forgive you for making me joke about farts for four minutes on a fucking show where we look at art films. Hey, I, could you think of a better way to end our season two? I mean, this is just like kind of a metaphor for our show. I think. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Well, well, I'll tell you what, Jason. Speaking of, <laughs> speaking of bottled shit, uh, we got a movie to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta Shit talk about packaged something and delivered in yes, the palm of your absolutely. hand for all to see and experience much like this film michael mann's the keep from 1983 though to hear it from him it's not his movie he has actually disowned this movie that's how bad it is. A description for you. Nazis are sent to guard an old mysterious fortress in a Romanian pass. One night, they mistakenly release an unknown force trapped within the walls. A mysterious stranger senses this from his home in Greece and travels to the keep to vanquish the force. As soldiers are killed, a Jewish man and his daughter, who are both knowledgeable of the keep, are brought in to find out what is happening. If that sounded like a bunch of ideas with no direction... You've nailed the keep. Yeah. No, that's that's farts in a jar for sure. What did he eat? Who knows? <laughs> so, uh, as always, I will toss to you and ask Ryan, what did you think about this movie? Though I think we kind of know. Uh, Yeah, Jason. I think we do kind of know. Um, I think there's a movie in here somewhere. I don't think uh, what we saw was it, though. Uh, it's, it's missing a lot. We're going to discuss that. Um, uh, normally I say, Jason, what did you think about this movie? But, uh, you know, I guess we're going to kind of go back and forth on this. Uh, I understand there's no trailer to cut to. Is that correct for us? Yes. To yes. So what get this, back to? Yes. Yes. So, so how the script works, Ryan, is you say, we'll tell you, all right, Jason, I'll tell you right after this trailer. And then we listen to the trailer, unless there's no trailer, in which case we try to fake out our audience, say right after this trailer, ah, <laughs> no trailer. And we say it like super broy and skatey like that. Should Got I just it. do, actually, should I just like, should I just do the rest of the, the show in that voice? Be like, all right, Ryan, so when we start out, bro. Um, the keep like the opening shot, dude. So we've got this like quick shot of the title in red font and it's against this like black backdrop. Is that? Is Here's the thing, Jason. Is that working for you? I'm here to tell you, any way you want to do the show uh, for the next hour and a half is going to be better than the hour and a half I spent watching this shitbox movie. <laughs> so we're just going to take turns like uh, reading reading this in different accents, right? What's, uh, what's one yeah. I don't have? Uh, oh, I know. I have a really bad Russian accent. So let's try that one. <clears throat> okay, go if, for it. After quick shot of title in red font against black backdrop. We get most of credit superimposed against gorgeous blue sky. How was that? Did that work? Uh, just, uh, again, better than this movie. Uh, <laughs> what else you got? Uh, let's see. What else do I got? Uh, I got like a Chicago like, hey, yo, so uh, after a quick shot of the title in red font against a black backdrop, we get most of the credit superimposed against a gorgeous blue sky. 
That's a little bit I of think you were, really slowly, you were slowly slipping back into the Russian, I think. That was... Uh... <laughs> Let's see. What else do I have? Let's see. Uh, I've got a really bad English one that I've busted out before. Uh, during the in the Medica, you watch movie. In, in uh, Russia, movie watches you. After a quick shot of the title in red font against a black backdrop, we get most of the credits superimposed against a gorgeous blue sky. It's kind of like, uh, you know, like I'm narrating a children's book. Little bit, little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or maybe you know, there's a little Oliver Twist. Please, sir, may I have some more <laughs> vibe going on there? Let's see, um, let's see if I can pull off sneering off sneering Australian. After a quick shot of the title in red font against black backdrop, we get most of the credits. Super. That's going a little like uh, Cockney, a little bit, right? <laughs> I, I, I really, I'm really sitting here wondering how long you're gonna, you're gonna keep, keep this. <laughs> And how much of this I'm going to have to edit out. Uh, uh, let's see. But, well, who else was I before? I did. Uh, oh, I did. I did Sebastian the crab from the little mermaid. <clears throat> After a quick shot of the title in red against a black backdrop, we get the credits against a gorgeous blue sky. Yeah, I am cranking these out. <laughs> Sit back and relax, people. We have 15 more minutes of me delivering the same line in different accents. Stand by. Oh man, yep. Thank God for that. Uh, <laughs> thank God for that. Skip 30 seconds ahead button, everybody. Like you all have on your cell phones. All um, right, all right. Let me go ahead and actually deliver this passage. But I just realized, Ryan, I have absolutely no idea where to start. Uh, as always, buddy. At the beginning. <laughs> so after after a quick shot of the title in red font against a black backdrop, <laughs> we get Christ. the credits against the backdrop of a gorgeous blue sky. A repetitious series of notes drone on from a synthesizer that grows ever louder as the camera tilts down to reveal the tops of a modest forest of trees. The shot continues uninterrupted to reveal a caravan of army vehicles progressing around a tight bend. I feel like there's a totally a Ryan joke in there for tight bend. What you got, buddy? <laughs> hey oh, hey <laughs> Uh, Ryan, from there we get a nice assemblage. There's actually like some some cinematic uh, devices at least uh, on display. Like you can tell that at least the person who shot the movie like does know how to make a movie. Um, you know, we get some close-ups of like this soldier striking a match and see the match head come to flames and, you know, eyes as he's sort of watching all these trucks pour into this village. Then we get like the wide shots of the village, which we can tell right off the bat is, you know, pretty poor and seemingly very religious. It's set in Romania, 1941, and this particular location is known as the Dinu Pass, the D-I-N-U. I'm probably butchering that the same way we butcher. It doesn't matter. It doesn't exist in real life. (laughs) I looked it up. It's all fictitious bullshit. Yes. It is, yeah, um, and uh, and you know all the all all while this is going on, we've got these uh, you know dreamy ethereal music and the slow motion visuals and the town shrouded in fog and you know I guess uh, Ryan, uh, what I wanted to say is obviously you know we we've both alluded to the fact that neither of us like this film already, which by the way for anyone listening we haven't mentioned this is based on a book. And I have read this book, and this book is fan freaking tastic, dude. It it's, shares the same name. It's called The Keep. Um, really, really strong novel. And this plays like 
the worst greatest hits version of that book. It's like it's like they tore out one page like they took one page out of every 17 and filmed that page and then just skipped ahead 17 pages and filmed another scene like it's such a mishmash of ideas that are all expressed and discovered really really strongly in the book and they either just try to do too much and then there's of course right. differing uh differing opinions as to whether there's like I've heard I've heard as, as much as like there's a three and a half hour Michael Mann cut out there that the studio cut down to like 90 minutes because they were just like, fuck you and your movie. Like it was really, really hard to get a straight answer uh, with the information that's available. But I will yeah, say that there's not uh, much information available. Go ahead. Yeah, Ryan, I will ask you, though, that like so, you know. We see some pretty effective uh, pieces of filmmaking here off the bat, but obviously it didn't come together. So so why doesn't this film work high level before we get into the specifics? Because of the missing information. Look, this would at least at worst be a cult hit on some level um, if like or some kind of a B movie. But uh, but you're absolutely right. There is a ton of missing information. This was a three hour movie that needed to be a three hour movie to work because, look, I mean, your music is done by Tangerine Dream, who Mm -hmm. did the music for Risky Business. They're an electronic group that pioneered synthesizer music in the 60s and 70s. I mean, they are totally legit and they've done work. So the score should have been okay. The cinematographer, Alex Thompson, shot things like Labyrinth and Legend for Ridley Scott. Fucking, this guy fucks. I mean, he's (laughs) pretty amazing. You've got Scott Glenn. You've got Ian McKellen. You've got Gabrielle Byrne, or Gabrielle Byrne. that cast was killer, man. It was so interesting to see all of those little baby-faced boys, (laughs) because they are anything but these days. Yeah, I mean, this is a uh, a brilliant thousand piece puzzle. And then if you just took like you dumped all the pieces on your coffee table and then just took like half of them with your arm and went foom all across the room. <laughs> and said, Don't need those. Fuck that. We're going to just make the best of what we got. And you slap it all together and be like, huh, doesn't look like a horse anymore. You're like, yeah, no shit, dipshit, because you just chucked half the pieces across the room. Well, that's kind of what we're left with, unfortunately. Um, I think the acting was decent. I think the camera work was awesome. There are some dope shots in here. Like, uh, yeah, 100%. Uh, there was one of, um, I think, Scott Glenn in the forest. Um uh, riding a motorcycle of some kind, if I'm not mistaken, or something like that. There, I mean, there's some beautiful stuff yeah. going on. I really uh, like the, the locations shots where were the, cool. Where the soldiers, uh, you know, where the where the, I I believe. Uh, earlier in the film, like I was, thought it was a smoke monster. It ends up being Molisar, obviously, but like that initial scene where the soldier, you know, is drawn to the cross and it's all lit up and you get that like cool shot where it's like, you know, it's kind of that, that shot where the lights pouring through a doorway and you get the silhouette of the person going in and out. Like, uh, right. that was really strong, you know, same with some of like the wide shots of like the guy entering the keep up front. Yeah. I mean, the, and the, the set, the set design is pretty dope too. I mean, the places yeah, they're totally. taking you are really cool looking. Um, you know, Jurgen Proch now, who was in Das Boot and, and uh, you know, he's got a very recognizable face. The second he came on the screen, 
Um, he's the guy, the German Nazi guy that was like kind of standing up for the villagers. Uh, yeah. When, so this uh, is a character Gabriel by Burton. the name of Warman, by the way. Yes, uh, correct. Is his, is mm-hmm. his character's name. And yeah, yeah. And, and I'm sure you had like no idea what the difference between like his character and Gabriel Byrne's character and all of that. So like kind of as we go through, like I'll, I'll like I said, I'll, I'll reference the book and kind of like let you know, like this is who these people are and this is what this was supposed to be. And like I think by the end of it, you'll appreciate like the story that the original author came up with. And also yeah. hopefully you and the listeners will realize just like how much of that did not get translated to the screen. Well, it's just not there. And like the, and the, the, the scenes jump uh, again, we're going to get to it as we go down the line, but there is like so much, Whoa, what the fuck is happening? Not the least yeah. of which the biggest, uh, WTF moment that I could think of that. I cannot wait to talk to you at length about at nausea okay. is, uh, the Scott, Glenn uh, romance section where <laughs> he meets this woman and within like, I don't know, a minute and a half, they start boning, but we're going oh, to get that's, to that. That's generous. Uh, I gave him, I think, two exchanges, but two back and forths before they were banging. <laughs> we'll get yeah, to that. It's it's <laughs> shocking. Um, before we get too far down the line, uh, okay. I think Michael Mann, um, when I think of Michael Mann personally, I think of like big sweeping epics. I can't think of an hour and 30 minute Michael Mann movie. I think all of his movies are two hours plus, you know, right, right. I just think that man wants to tell a story. And, um, at this juncture, he had only made thief. This is his second feature film, uh, big theatrical release. I think he'd made a couple of things for TV maybe and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, he just didn't have the clout, I think. And some of the things that he was trying to do at the time were pretty ambitious um, with the big monster. Um, and yeah, I just don't think that he w- it just wasn't the right time for him to make this kind of a film. And uh, and the technology wasn't there for the budget he was probably on. I think the studio had a lot of concerns when they were watching this thing. And uh, I heard they, you know. They made a lot of cuts. I also know that uh, his visual effects designer um, ended up passing away. I'm sure we're going to talk about this as well towards the end of the film. And uh, they were not able to come up with a suitable way to end the film in the way that the book ends, which actually has an ending. This just kind of like wraps it up pretty quickly and and feels really abbreviated. So uh, yeah. anyway, uh, I digress. All that said, uh, let's go ahead and start uh, chunking our way through this thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, like I said, we get those opening scenes that we mentioned earlier, and then we get this guy, Warman, who uh, – how do you pronounce his name? What's the actor's name? Yeah, Jorgen Prochnow. I don't know if Jorgen that's – Jorgen Prochnow. Oh. It sounded Jürgen. very good. It sounded like something you had, like, practiced and looked up. I was like, oh, that's a good pronunciation. I think it's um, Jorgen, Jorgen Prochnow. Jorgen Prochnow. That- yeah. <laughs> any, any, anything that has Ergen immediately makes me think of, like, the horrible Swedish accent. That we always it's that got like a cartoons would do like Snyergen, Hjergen, yeah. Fjergen, right? That's absolutely what. It, yeah, that's where my mind goes. Uh, <laughs> yep. Sorry, Sweden, if you're listening, you throw an umlaut out me. That's what you're getting in return. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this guy Warman, he's kind of like uh, you know, seemingly this film has no protagonist, but I feel like they at least tried to make him in. And in the book, he's. It's kind of more of an ensemble piece as well. Either way, so he's kind of like this general, and he appears within the keep. And then, you know, immediately we have that, like, don't go over there character in the form of, you know, the keeper (laughs) of the keep, right? And he comes in, and he's like, oh, you can't disturb the crosses. Don't disturb the crosses. And all the soldiers. So there's these crosses that are, like, built into the walls, right? They're silver. And they're not fully crosses. They're, like, 
stubby crosses. Like the top part of a traditional cross is brought down much lower so that it doesn't make a formal cross. Uh, they look like the Tesla logo, right? Like that's really what I did. kept thinking. Yeah. yeah. And there's and then again, there's actually a reason for that that like factors in. Um, that we'll get to. So uh, the soldiers are they're basically told like don't mess with those. By the way, not in though, this movie. There's not no Maybe not in the, the movie. There's not in the book. There is <laughs> not in the movie at all. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and and basically, it's like hey, those are nickel and silver. Like you can't touch them. But the soldiers are drawn to them anyways, and they try to fuck with them, and it's uh, very quickly reprimanded because again, uh, you know, they're not supposed to mess with those and. Very quickly after that, there's the sort of like we do get there are some really cool shots in and of themselves, like the shot of sort of night settling over the the town and, you know, inside the sure. castle, like one of the crosses starts glowing and attracts the soldier. That's where we get the cool shot that I referenced earlier, where it's like him going into and out of the light, kind of like that poltergeist feel a little bit. Right. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, the soldiers pull the cross out of the wall and this giant sort of smoke spirit just sort of appears out of nowhere and, uh, seemingly attacks them and kills them. Uh, but we don't see that because all of a sudden we get a quick jump cut to Scott Glenn's character who, uh, is named Glaken and he sort of like, you know, jumps awake and, uh, we see that his eyes are glowing blue. And so, uh, so Ryan, did you, so as someone who just saw the movie, like, did you have any idea what the fuck was going on with his character and like what the eyes were and like all of that? Uh, you could have stopped that sentence with Ryan. Did you have any idea what the fuck was going on? (laughs) Period. Full stop. Answered. No. (laughs) Yeah. No. Okay. To that answer, to your question and every other, no, I did not know what was going on at all. Ever. I had to put the pieces together. Uh, with online research. Um, gotcha. Yeah, he yes. shows up. Yeah, in, in your description, you're talking about he's coming from Greece and he's going to like, he's the the chosen one. Like you had this great description at the top of the show um, after the fart bit and the, uh, and the, the <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, voice inflection uh, bit. But uh, yeah, I, I have no, no, I had no idea what, who this guy was, what he was after. I mean, obviously he senses a growing evil, He's coming to stop it in some way, but uh, yeah. yeah, that's never explained. So who the character is supposed to be, it's actually interesting because in the book, it actually just – his character is very obscure initially. There's these scenes, and he's basically just trying desperately to get somewhere. So we get these sort of like isolated scenes of him like basically talking to people at different ports and trying to secure a boat and basically just trying to secure passage to all these different places. And he's got money, and there's kind of a mysticism that surrounds him. But it doesn't really go into, like, who he is or what he is. What happens is by the end of it, so he actually ends up, you know, getting to the keep. And he does forge a relationship with the professor's daughter and all of that. But he's basically like this. Think of it like if Molisar is the longstanding evil that persists through time. This guy, Glaken, is supposed to be the counterpart. He's the hero. He's the good guy that has existed for thousands of years and basically, you know, is the sort of one guy who knows how to defeat Molisar and is eternal and immortal. And, you know, the yin and yang of it all. Yeah, exactly. And I and so it kind of struck me as like, uh, did you ever read Stephen King's The Dark Tower series? Uh, I did, actually. I've read the first five books. I haven't read the last two. Uh, I just bought book so, six. So, Glaken kind of uh, reminded me of, like, the gunslinger 
Um, yeah, totally. In that regard, just uh, you know, the the good to outweigh the evil in the world of sorts. You know, definitely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's what he is, and um, but that wasn't in this movie. No, <laughs> that was not in this movie. Yes, that was never explained. He's just a dude on a bike with glowing eyes that shows Correct. up at the end. Yeah, looks fucks, cool. and then wraps the movie up, and we out. That's it. <laughs> and then after and that, goes a we long do way get a. We do get like this unnecessarily long sailing shot, which I thought was hilarious because you could tell they're like, no, guys, you made us spend money on this expensive ass boat. Like you, you're going to have a 30 second transition shot in a 90 minute movie. So we get a very uh, rather long sailing shot. And then we're back to the keep where all of a sudden we're told that overnight five soldiers have died. Now, we saw two of them die, at least. But uh, apparently some other ones died without us knowing. And that's when evil er nazis move in so see that's kind of i don't know how much this came across ryan but see you've got like evil nazis and then like evil er nazis and like fjurgen jurgen is like evil nazi and then gabriel Byrne is like evil er nazi and so right. by comparison like SS or mormon's like kind of like the better of the two gabriel Byrne's character uh, is named kampfler by the way or kampfler i'm sure again i'm butchering all these but uh, but yeah, so he's like basically even more evil than the other guy, who's actually not that evil when you really take a step back. Yeah, I, I mean, it, again, it, it, kind of hearkening back to like Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, you've got like the evil Nazis. Obviously, they're evil Nazis, this and that. But then you've got the eviler Nazis, which are the ones whose faces melt at the very end. Yes, uh, yeah, you know the. The, the the really bad guys and I think uh, and I think I think it's something where really it's like the stuff. the really bad ones are like yeah, like German SS or something like that like they're like right. a particular yes. or uh, army or sect of protection or something and basically yeah. they're the ones that wear like the black outfits as opposed to the traditional there are some tan outfits. Nazis that are just like nationalists that are going with the flow for their the good of the country and then there are others that are behind the whole thing know what's going on the inner uh you know, mechanisms of the Nazi regime and are doing, you know, kind of barking the orders more or less and pulling the strings and causing these evil atrocities. And yeah, so, so this is where we're at. Absolutely. And so because, like I said, these people are dying, they send in the eviler Nazi, Gabriel Byrne, and then they find this message written on the wall in not quite Romanian. And uh, they ask to the priest, uh, again, normally in the book, you know, this is something that's sort of drawn out and it's like, what is this? And they have it's like kind of like a little mini subplot in this one. In the next scene, the priest is like, I don't know. I can't read that next scene. Oh, this is what that says. It says, uh, <laughs> um, what yeah. does it say? It says, I will be free, actually, is what it ends up saying. But uh, again, you know, like none of these things are drawn out. They're just all just, OK, this was here. Throw that at the wall. This was here. OK, throw that at the wall. Uh, light eyes slash Glaken slash Scott Glenn. Uh, I like to call them light eyes. And so for the rest of this episode, uh, Scott Glenn slash Glaken will be referred to as light eyes by yours truly. He arrives by motorcycle. <laughs> and then shortly after that, we get another person show up because it's like, hey, you know what this 90 minute movie needs? Like six protagonists that all have equal yes. timeshare. <laughs> yeah, um, with zero explanation. Yeah, yeah with no zero character explanation of who any of them are. But they're yes. all going to be played by really strong actors that haven't come into their own yet. Like, can you imagine how much this cast would cost, like, today to 10 years ago? That would be insane. Yeah, but could you dude. imagine how good this movie would be with this cast today? Yeah, and given and given the proper amount of time. Yeah, because. Given the proper this, amount of time, yes. Yeah, because we get this Romanian professor that shows up. With his daughter, his name is Dr. Kuza, and he's played by Ian McKellen. 
So for those keeping track at home, yes, you've got Ian McKellen, Gabriel Burns, Scott Glenn, uh, Fjurgen Jurgen, who's who's fine, and uh, I really should learn his name. Like I'm probably offending like somebody out there. His name <laughs> is like Jurgen. Like, I mean, you got the Jurgen part. I think his name is Jurgen Proch now, but yeah, uh, just call him Jurgen. Then Jurgen. We're all winners here. <laughs> then I don't get to make my jokes. I really should just just pick one and commit to it. But either way, uh, Jurgen, yeah. So I'll just go ahead and call him Jurgen for the rest of the time. And basically, uh, the professor, the evil Ur-Nazi played by Gabriel Byrne, shows up and he's like, "Oh, hey, professor. Yeah, all my people are dying. Uh, you have three days to figure this shit out." Bam, leaves. It's like, dude, everything happens yeah. so quickly. Like overnight, five people die, and then this guy shows up, and then he has three days to figure it out, and it's like, ugh, so ridiculous. By the way, uh, they dig Ian McKellen. So the, it's brought to uh, Gabriel Byrne's attention and, and Jurgen Prochnow's attention that uh, the man they want to talk to to get to the bottom of this business is Dr. Theodore Kuza, played by Ian McKellen. They dig Ian McKellen and his daughter um, out of, I believe, Dachau, Dachau uh, the sure. um, constant, uh, notorious concentration camp in Nazi mm. Germany. Yeah. And he. He's just chilling. Like they make uh, Dachau look like um, like a country club of sorts. Like he's just kind of like <laughs> leaning on the barbed wire fence, just like hey, you know, everything's cool. Oh, you know, we need to go solve this mist- Scooby Doo mystery. Okay, let's go. And then like <laughs> they they really downplay the uh, atrocities that were going on at the time, or maybe they weren't quite as bad at the, in 1941. I know, but um, no, I think they were. Dude, I think it's probably uh, but, just one of those things. It's like, look, dude, I'm not even given. I'm Michael Mann's like, I haven't even been given the time to focus on text. And you want me to like spend time on subtext. <laughs> right. Right. That's fair. That's fair. It just seemed more like camp and less concentration. Yeah, absolutely. It did. Yeah. But there's, and, and it just falls in line with, again, not, you know, not being given the attention that it deserves really at the end of the day. It's really just what and everything when they, comes down to. When they bring him in, um, he looks like Ian McKellen today. And I know he's supposed yeah. to have some kind of debilitating uh, condition, uh, but I'm like, oh, Ian McKellen has an aged a bit. And then uh, he gets wizarded <laughs> back to being young again from the um, evil Molokai or whatever the fuck his name was. And uh, it doesn't Molisar. matter who the bad guy was. Yeah, whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, then he then he's, uh, you know, back in 1983 Ian McKellen. I was like, oh, OK, that's what he looked like back then. They just olded him up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which also they did a great job because when he first appeared, much like yourself, like I didn't think, oh, that's Ian McKellen in makeup. I thought, wow, Ian McKellen's always looked like an old man. Correct. That's my point, more or less. Yes. <laughs> I was like, wow. He, he hasn't aged a day since 1983 because he aged all the days in 1979, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. So now this is where. Uh, this is where the book and and film is most interesting is um but obviously not really given enough screen time but Kuza like I said decodes the message says I will be free obviously you know somebody wrote this message talking about themselves being free and it turns out that it's this smoke figure right and he actually so the daughter is actually one night uh, the daughter of the professor is like a, is actually about to be assaulted by these uh, Nazi the Nazi guards and the smoke monster appears and saves her from that and then delivers her to the professor and is like hey what's up I saved your daughter not such a bad guy here huh let's uh let's maybe work together here oh by the way I can make you 30 years younger 
bam, and does so. And that's where we see, like, you know, young Ian McKellen show up. And uh, first of all, like, you just, you gotta love that uh, 80s animation slash special effects. It's just, mwah, perfect, delicious. And uh, and then after that is, yeah, where we get, because we're racing through this thing here. Uh, and if it sounds like we're racing through the story as you're listening, like, we're not any more than the film. Like, this is exactly the this way is the experience. that the film is pieced together. Just, like, this jumping is the from one thing to the next with no explanation. I have said this before about another movie. Maybe it was The Void, where I likened it to listening to a five-year-old tell a story. Where they're <laughs> just jumping that. around, leaving big yeah. chunks out. That was and totally then, The Void, um, by the way. And then the clowns shown up, and then you're like, oh, there's clowns now? And you're like, yeah. And then um, uh, and then there's like drifting off, thinking what's next. That's how this movie felt. And uh, yeah, tons of plot holes, tons of people jumping around. Uh, when I say jumping around, I mean like Ian McKellen's in the keep, and then like literally the next scene, he's like somewhere else, and then he's somewhere else entirely. Like there's no... Yeah, there's a um, lot of time traveling in this movie. <laughs> there's a lot of continuity errors. Uh, there's a lot of audio problems. To, around this time in the notes I have uh, in the film uh, that the audio kept dropping out. The dubbing is terrible. Um, you'd hear like, uh, you know, people would be talking, and then all of a sudden their lips would keep moving. And then there was no dialogue for that part. And I was like, oh, they just gave up. Okay, cool. <laughs> That's hilarious, dude. Uh, speaking of which, by the way, since we're kind of talking about sound, let's uh, let's talk real quick about this score, this Tangerine Dream score. So Tangerine Dream is obviously, especially over the years, uh, they were somewhat popular at the time, but especially like heavily recognized by, you know, artistic sorts and people that were into the early stages of electronic, uh, which was pretty much inspired by like Krautrock and, and Germany and a lot of what was going over there in the late seventies and Tangerine Dream was part of that. They had albums like full albums. And then they also uh, started getting into scores. What did you think about their score for this film and how it related to the movie and all that? Uh, it didn't relate to the movie at all. I thought it was <laughs> right? a great score. I'm so glad I, you said that because that was my big takeaway too. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was like, as I mean, yeah, it's, um, let's make well, a, uh, a, a Nazi horror thriller, but then have Odessa score it or flume. <laughs> it was like, that makes no sense whatsoever. Um, yeah. Schindler's list, uh, music by Paul Oakenfold. Wait, what? <laughs> uh, well, and Not, what was so funny is, like, so much of it sounded like other Michael Mann films, which are, sure. like, detective uh, thrillers, right? And, like, noir right. thrillers. So it's like, you know, or, like, the Miami Vice shit that he does, right? You know, so Correct. when it's, like, Thief and it's some, like, darkened, gritty New York street and the, you know, everything's wet and neon soaked, like, yeah, it sounds great. But then all of a sudden, like, we're in you know, nature in Romania or we're in a keep that's pretty much dominated by like stone pillars and bricks. All of a sudden it's like, like what the fuck? This does not match at all. And then, I know. And then this funny thing happened where because the movie actually sucked and nothing makes sense. And the more, the more it went on, the more it became my favorite part of the movie. Because it was like actually interesting. And I was like, well, it's actually not so bad. It's, it's kind of good. It sounds great. I can't stress enough how much this movie did not need synth vibes uh synth vibes <laughs> and his saxophone solos and shit it's like uh yeah. 
It's like bending guitar notes and stuff. I'm like, okay, yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, there's like fog drifting in and like slowly like walking through this like shrouded forest and shit. And it's just like, this doesn't match at all. I mean, on one hand, I will say there is a world that uh, this this movie could lean more into the horror vibes um, and kind of round off that side of it. And then I would maybe lean more into the synth side of it. Um, yeah. But as it sits, uh, the horror part of it and the villain part of it is so abbreviated. The Scott Glenn character is so abbreviated that all we're left with, I mean, the big bulk of this film has more to do with the Nazis and um, yeah. So to go synth vibes with it, it really does feel like, uh, a synth vibe soundtrack to like Raiders of the Lost Ark or something like it just doesn't it's not it doesn't fit but it's good yeah, it reminds it's me a good of that, soundtrack for another movie <laughs> it reminds me of that thing that we sometimes do that I used to do a lot more when I was younger to be honest but where you you watch one thing and then listen to something else on a different device that's exactly what this felt like. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's totally fair. Yeah. <laughs> this and, is a dark uh, side of the rainbow gone wrong. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, <laughs> and, and then after you, know, you that, talked a little bit, you ahead. talked a little bit about the visual effects and the smoke monster and, and, uh, Molasar or Malachi or whatever his yeah. name is. Um, you know, uh, visual effects for this film were done by the great Wally Vivers, uh, who I, I mentioned at the top of the show uh, passed away during the making of this film. Now, this is the guy that was responsible for most of the visual effects for Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, he shit. also did okay. Richard Donner's uh, Superman right before wow. this. Okay. He did um, Excalibur. Uh, nice. For our, our homeboy that made Zardoz. <laughs> our homie Borman. <laughs> yep. And so, uh, yeah, this guy has been around and he's done. That's crazy. And he was trying to make this and then he died. And Michael Mann's like, uh oh. And then we got what we got. We got a, you know, the, the go bot version of this film instead of the transformers version. Uh, yeah, is, that makes you know, sense. No good. That, that makes sense. Well, yeah. And so shortly after this all takes place, by the way, that's where we get the, uh, the introduction of, uh, light eyes and professor's daughter, uh, where, yeah, after two, possibly three words back and forth, they decide, hey, let's bang, which is weird because part of those two to three words they share is her letting him know that she's uncomfortable sharing a room with him. So, like, yeah, eh, she can seem to get over that real quick. Um, well, why would they? I mean, so who let Scott Glenn in there? The, the innkeeper just uh, like he was showing the woman up to uh, her room. And then yes. when they get to said room. Scott Glenn light eyes is just in there staring wistfully out of a window for no reason. He's like, is this the only room you have with a view of the keep and the innkeeper, instead of saying rightfully, so who the fuck are you get out of my place? He says, yeah, sure. And Scott Glenn's like, cool, I'll take it. And then he looks over to the woman. He's like, uh, so where will you stay? And she's like, I guess I'll go back to the keep, which wait, what? And then he's like, well, you'd better stay here. And then she's like, nah, you're right. I'll stay here with you. And And then they start, hooking up and yeah. i was like wow that escalated <laughs> not quickly but just awkwardly i don't yeah. know and yeah, it's so- graphic like they hook up and it shows 80s bush and like all of it like it's like they're graphically hooking up and i was like damn dude like what <laughs> is going on right now yeah i don't know i mean i guess it was kind of it felt a little skinamaxy if i'm being honest like it didn't uh 
This is certainly a far cry from Pornhub, but no, yeah, me. I know that. I mean, yeah, by today's standards, but uh, it just true. seemed like it came out of nowhere. So it just it feels <laughs> yeah. like so. Forced. It did. It did. And and so in the book, just to clarify, basically, like it is much more drawn out. And basically, Scott Glenn's character has gone to the professor because uh, Molisar is basically like uh, trying to con him, which they again allude to very soon here, but it's not really explored. Um, I'll get into that a, a little bit more greater detail here in just a second. But basically, like he yeah. So he finds out that the daughter has gone back to the keep or to this uh, hostel that's very close to the keep. Um, but she's by herself and she's isolated and she's kind of, uh, what's the word exposed or, you know, she's not protected. So he's basically going to go down there to protect her. And then there's actually like an attraction and then they're like almost going to hook up. But then like, he actually says no because he knows what he is and she doesn't. And he, he doesn't want to drag her into it. And so then he goes away and then he comes back and then they finally succumb to it. So it is definitely more drawn out when they finally, um, uh, like do hook up in the film, in the book. Yeah. Um, so again, it's not that any of these things different didn't happen. It's just that like everything that all of the parts that give these decisions weight and all of the reasoning behind the things that happen are not present in the film. So nothing has any justification, right? Right. Like it's, it's like hearing that's my greatest hits. It's literally like greatest choruses. (laughs) Like if there Um, was like an album that was just the choruses of all your favorite songs, that would be this, this film. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Or even worse, half a chorus and half a verse. You just don't even get the ending or beginning of either. It's just a jostled mess. Um, I do think there, we talked about this at, at the top of the show again. I think that there is a two plus hour version of this movie that, that I would watch and at least appreciate as a B movie or cult hit. Uh, yeah. This is not it. This is the hour and 36 version uh, minute version uh, without uh, you know the necessary pieces to keep you going. Cause like he has no reflection. Uh, for example, they catch him in the, she catches him in the mirror and uh, yeah. they're like embracing and he doesn't have a reflection. You just see her, which is, was actually kind of a cool shot the way they did that yeah. visual trick. Um, but never explained. Is he a vampire? Who knows? So, so this is kind of one of the interesting things about the Molisar character. So Molisar is the creature, the big, bad, evil um, that Correct. shows up, which, by the way, since we're on it, what did you think of the creature design for Molisar? Terrible. <laughs> I kind of liked it, dude. <laughs> like, I didn't think that it like, you know, it was and I don't know how much uh, where makeup and effects were at the time. Like. It's, you know, they do that thing where, for example, like his lips don't move when he talks and stuff. Right. But it's still this like sort of like big blue sinewy, sinewy sort of uh, like uh, golem like character almost with these like red glowing eyes. And like, I kind of dug it. It was it was kind of cheesy in that like eighties way. Also, that was but they made thing him too, like this- super ripped. Like they just gave him like <laughs> traps from hell. His traps started at his ears. Yeah, go down to his shoulders. <laughs> He's got these monstrous apples or pumpkin sized shoulders. They just kind of did like eighties villain and uh, made him like super jacked and then gave him red eyes and painted him blue uh, with a, you know, quick airbrush job and rolled him out there. Said, go yeah. out there. He's like, yeah, you know, so then, then he's just kind of like talking, you know, he's talking all menacingly, you know, I'm the great Morris. His, his lips aren't moving. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. So here's what I will say. So, um, Molisar is an actual full on character in the book. And to your point, he's actually, yes, kind of a vampire. 
Um, most of the book is set up to make you think that he's just like an outright vampire for maybe two thirds of it uh, until we get to this point in there. And then it's revealed. Well, that we he's haven't like even talked about the fact vampire. I, I, I don't qualities. know if this is it. If this is in the book or not, I don't know. But we uh, apparently uh, this takes place on the outskirts of Transylvania in Romania or or around Romania. So uh, lends itself very well to the vampire myth uh, mythology and that whole world uh, of which we get none in this. movie. Yeah. And it's kind of a missed opportunity. Yeah, and it's kind of presented as a twist on, like, the traditional vampires. So, like, they even, like, vampires exist in this world to the point that when the professor meets Molisar, like, he actually asks if he's a vampire. And he's like, no, vampires are bullshit, but there's, like, there's elements of what I am that have since sort of evolved into this vampire myth. Um, so there are certain things that are true, like, uh, you know, like, like he's sensitive to crosses and uh, he doesn't cast a reflection. Um, right. But like, you know, like Bible passages and garlic don't do shit. So it kind of takes it's really cleverly done. You know, it kind of says that like, I would have loved to have seen some of that. in Yeah, this film. I think that that would have rounded out. That character, because when he's introduced, he's introduced as a pretty cool dude. He saves his daughter. He's pretty polite, kills Nazis, he, you know, heals Ian McKellen. Yeah. And uh, I was like, you know, get me out of here. Like, let's let's go do some good in the world. I'm going to kill all the Nazis. And, uh, you know, I'm like, yeah, dude, that guy seems pretty cool. And Scott <laughs> Glenn kind of comes off as a douchebag. And then, um, you know, in the end, we're like they kind of shoehorn in the fact that this is actually a bad guy and. Uh, it all wraps up so fast, um, you know, it's kind of a uh, whip, uh, you know, storyline whiplash where it's like, oh, OK, uh, you know. Yeah. But they never get anything, into any of the vampire stuff or Transylvania, you know, that this was Transylvania or like any of that stuff. That yeah, was all absolutely. Left behind, unfortunately. Now, I will say that's probably the one thing that the film like does actually do pretty effectively, because that's kind of the whole thing is you are sort of supposed to buy into Molisar and what he's selling. OK. To uh, the professor's character so that when Scott Glenn shows up later and is like, yeah, this is all bullshit, blah, 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 blah. Like you're not certain at first. And then it ends up that like, he's true or he was correct. Okay. And so basically what, what happened is a Molisar basically uh, through promise of, and the thing is in the film too, like there's a strong sense of nationalism among the professor. So the professor is actually Romanian and, you know, be, because so many, Romanians were experiencing the same level of treatment as um, Jewish people by the Nazis, you know, oppressive, subjugated. Uh, He wants nothing more than justice for his people. And so part of what Molisar offers him is he's basically like, hey, no one can kill Hitler except me. Right. And he actually pretends that like his original being that he was originally Romanian. And so he's equally offended and wants justice. Um, and so Got he it. basically is trying to manipulate the professor into helping him get out of a, tr- of, of basically a, not a trap, but a power that holds Molisar within the keep. And this is essentially what is going on that doesn't translate to the screen is, you know, those crosses that we've been told about the entire time that are in these walls. Yes. So there's a thing wherein the silver. So I think it's a silver and and they're also laced with gold, by the way, in the book. And so what it is, is that the silver or, or nickel, it might be nickel either way, not a point silver or nickel. 
um, is sort of basically like the Molossar's kryptonite, so to speak, right? Um, and it sort of keeps him housed within. Also, uh, and <laughs> again, there's a lot going on here, but so that that's that's a weakness to him, right? Now, in the book, basically what it explains is that people, uh, demons like Molossar, their power comes from a talisman. And I don't know how many people out there are, are familiar with the concept of a talisman, but basically it's an object. And typically this object has some sort of either curse or enchantment or whatever it is, some sort of mystical uh, ascription to it uh, that that gives its possessor their power, right? And so that's the thing with Molossar is Molossar gets his power from this talisman and Scott Glenn basically showed up like thousands of years ago in the beginning of time, stole that, went and buried it like in some nondescript place and then outfitted the keep with silver so that a the silver kept Molossar in within the keep because B, he didn't have the source of his power, which is very far away. So basically Molossar is convincing the professor to get on his side and is ultimately going to have him look for and find the talisman and bring it back to him, at which point he'll be powerful enough to bust out of the keep. Cool. So that's kind of like high level, like what's going on with all of that. Uh, and none not of that, this movie, it's none not. of that comes across in the film. <laughs> <laughs> right. You got the nickel. Cr- I mean, all those things are, are there. None of them are connected though. There's no connected yeah, tissue. Like you've got the nickel it, crosses. I- you've got Molossar. You've got vampire stuff going on, but none of it is explained. There's no, um, there's no exposition dumps at all. There's no exposition. There's no explanation. You're just jumping around between these characters in the middle of stuff. And uh, you're left to kind of figure it out on your own. And I did do a little bit of research online, you know, trying to prepare for this show. But to your credit, uh, like you said earlier, there's not a lot of information online either. So because yeah. uh, this film is kind of a forgotten, you know, scrapped uh, waste of time for everybody, I guess. I did see that the footage that was cut was lost to time. So no Michael Mann director's cut could even be made anymore. Um, they just lost the prints or they got destroyed or deteriorated or whatever. Uh, and then someone probably an intern said, uh, Oh no, you know, the, the key prints are ruined. And everyone's like, uh, okay. And then that's, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No sweat chat. We're good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What do you, what, what do you want for lunch? um yeah so anyways to get back to so so that's again and i'm sure just ryan as someone who's seen the film like you can you can sort of retroactively please like oh yeah all those pieces are in the film but none of them were given that context so it doesn't right correct yeah Yeah. there's no context there's no connective tissue um yeah yeah i i will can i will continue to say um, I would have loved to, I would have gladly sat through a two plus hour version of this film. Now I'm not going to, uh, say it's going to be the best version of this or what have you, but, uh, at least it would have made sense. Um, there are pieces of this that are good. We've talked about this and I stand by it. The cinematography is good. The music is cool. Uh, maybe it doesn't quite fit, but you know, honestly, if they would have leaned more into the horror side of it, yeah. uh, the, the, you know, the, the eighties horror 
vibe of like night. I'm thinking Nightmare on Elm Street, for example, with Freddy Krueger. You know, dude, any of those shitty '80s movies that we used to rent on VHS. Which, like, by the way, I don't know how your transfer was, but I had like the shittiest SD transfer through Amazon. Oh, the worst! And afterwards, I was really glad because, like. I feel like this is one of those like, you know, basket case or any of those like old 80s horror movies where it almost deserves to be seen in a shitty transfer. Pre- yes. Preferably I want to see the clicks and pops of the audio, yeah. you know, <laughs> little hair on the hair on the gate like they we saw in Sweetbacks all the time. Yeah. Yeah, super scratch before there was, you know, remastering and all that sort of shit. <laughs> <laughs> right. All about it. Yeah, so uh, so it did kind of work in 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 that respect, but um, as far as the film is concerned, yeah, it kind of touches on all that, and Molasar kind of does convince the professor to help him out, and you know when when the daughter introduces wide eyes to her dad, like that goes about as well as a lot of in law meetings go, and that it doesn't go well at all, and you know he basically knows that Molasar is trying to trick him and he's, you know, telling him like, hey, you're being fooled. And yeah, who, who appreciates uh, being told that they're being fooled by somebody being manipulated? Not a person. So, of course, old boy Ian McKellen does not appreciate that as well. Um, and all of this sort of sets up a really just sort of a last minute, uh, as we like to say, ham fisted finale uh, that just kind of wraps things up without really letting you know what's going on. So. Um, you know, they, they end up, they do confront Molasar and they, you know, basically the professor challenges him and sort of says like, Hey, they say this is what's going on. And then Molasar is like called out and is like, ah, you got me. And then he sort of like, fuck you though. And then blasts him with this like red energy that makes him old again. At which point, like light eyes, eyes is, well, they light up and, uh, he's got this like staff all of a sudden and the staff emits uh, yeah. this like pink light. He's got a tube. It's got like a flashlight, pink flashlight. So pink lightsaber. Ian McKellen's character, the doctor has uh, the talisman that's going to set homeboy free from the keep, I guess. Yeah. And that connected to. So the whole time we see Scott Glenn's character traveling across the sea to get to this thing, to have this final standoff, he's got this box that he's carrying with him and this case. We didn't mention that. And it looks like a, like a, you know, something you'd carry a pool cue in. Um, and you know, you expect that it's some kind of artifact or some kind of something he's going to need a MacGuffin of sorts. And, um, yeah, sure as shit. He opens that up. It's just a black tube that he connects to the talisman and it makes a sword looking thing, which he turns around uh, to the hilt side and it shoots out and emits an energy, a white light of sort. And, and uh, yeah, it ra- wraps a uh, old Molokai up real quick. Molokai, whatever his name, Mola- Molasar, whatever. Molasar, yeah. But yeah, and then I guess... Uh, so right, that's... right about now, by the way, let, let just... Uh, I can't stress this enough. Our listeners right now have to be like, what the fuck? How much cocaine <laughs> did Ryan and Jason do? None of what they're saying is making sense. They're just jumping all around like in the middle and in and out. And yes, that's how this movie plays out. This like, is why I tried to entertain with. you guys with accents at the top of the show. Yes. And Bad then accents, happens, but accents. And then that happens. Right. This is all this movie is. It is so crazy. <laughs> That this exists, yeah. like they actually rolled this out, and someone paid to see this in a theater. And and I and I guess that was the uh, is interesting. I didn't know about the special effects supervisor passing away, so I guess yeah, that was maybe their 
resolution. They're like, well, we had this big, huge thing drawn out, but homeboy passed. So, uh, pink flashlight. Right. That's what happened. Pink flashlight. Good yep. work. Pink yep. flashlight. All right. Pink flashlight. Yep. We're going with it. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause I, uh, it's my understanding that, uh, the book wraps up in a completely different fashion as books tend to do with movies. And there's like a huge standoff with a portal to hell and they get like sucked in and the whole thing. Yeah. But uh, none of that happened in this film. Pink flashlight. <laughs> nope. Pink Laser flashlight. Time. After which point the daughter and the dad collapse on the ground outside and we see a bunch of villagers rush to like meet and save them. And then, uh, you know, as any good mo- 80s movie does, it uh, ends in a freeze frame of uh, the daughter looking back at camera for <laughs> reasons that we don't really right. know. Yep. Uh, that's the movie and then it's over. I was so like I was watching I watched this by myself in my house and uh yeah I yeah that room I watched in was so dead silent I just sat there and stared at the credits like what the fuck did I, I just I was so taken aback by this film I couldn't believe that that's all it was, was like wow yeah that was something and dude I mean I was something I saw Here's the thing, man. Like, so if if you're telling me there's a Michael Mann cut out there that's twice as long, I mean, first of all, I'm not generally (laughs) they generally don't (laughs) cut out the action scenes. Right. So, like, if it's another 90 minutes of, like, story exposition, I don't know that I would want to see that. But I would at least want to watch it once to see. Yeah. Like. Exact and to understand exactly what happened, and because so it was interesting because, it, like Michael Mann has never expressed an interest in horror, so I don't understand why he was approached to do this project. So when they brought it to him, he really wanted to focus on sort of like the dreamlike elements, and that's why we get correct, you know, the Tangerine Dream soundtrack, and we get a lot of the you know slower shots and the you know shrouded heavy shrouds of fog and. I mean, it's not the tone of the book, but I feel like there was a way to sort of make that work. Um, But all of that just seemed to like sort of go out the window after the first 10 minutes. And again, like I just don't know how much of this is they they didn't stick the landing, you know, and this is actually like the far superior version. Like maybe that three hour, three and a half hour Michael Mann cut just was abysmal. Maybe it was horrible. Maybe it was another 90 minutes to two hours of exactly the same thing. But I don't know. I mean, apparently there's a whole section that got cut for whatever reason, where with Scott Glenn on the boat, when he's on the boat coming over from Greece um, and where he takes over the boat and there was fight scenes and like the whole bit. And like they were, you know, he was trying to get him to change course or something. And, and uh, they had the big standoff and he was able to showcase a little bit about what, you know, he was about. Uh, we don't see any of that. The love scene, like you said, there's a whole section of the story. Like you are already covered where um, uh, the daughter and, and Scott Glenn were, you know, coming together to, to kind of solve the mystery and, and figure out what's going on in the keep. And that's what brings them together. There's also a part of the keeper, uh, the keep keeper of sorts um, in the beginning of the film that does the translation of the Romanian and all of that. He was looking after the keep. Yeah. He's got three sons and you get a brief right. shot about three quarters of the way in <laughs> where he's being like eaten or killed by his sons because of the possession and the evil that's going on around the keep. And it just like cuts to that happening very quickly to where you don't even understand. It wasn't even until I yeah, I didn't pick up on went into all. the notes online uh, where I realized, oh, that's what that was. Okay, because I you just cut into the 
I don't know, man. There's a lot going on uh, that you're right. That would have been connective tissue, and it would have been nice to have explained a little bit, but we get none of that here. Yeah. I bet you, uh, dude, you know who you know who would crush a remake of this is uh, Denis Villeneuve. I know, I know you weren't like super stoked on Dune, but like he would crush this dude. He would do it in that, in his big giant epic sci-fi style. And, uh, I think he would crush it, but that's just me. Yeah. Uh, I I mean, (laughs) I don't know that it needs honestly, I don't know that it needs a remake. Maybe dude, um, I'm telling you the story's so good, man. Like not to be that guy, but like, you know, I'm that guy, like read the fucking book, dude. It's so good. And it's such like, it really does like. It almost doesn't have a protagonist, but everybody is given the respect of having a protagonist's arc. So you understand the the relationship between uh, Warman and, uh, you know, the eviler Nazi, I forget, Kompfler, you know, and the way that okay. like, the two of them are fighting because, like, they're constantly going at it. Like, the, the two of them are constantly buck- bucking for... Um, like authority and uh, Warman actually ends up developing a like sort of friendly relationship with the Romanian professor. And he's also very much against the most extreme measures of Nazism. Right. So he's kind of like, to your point, you know, the kind of, patriotic go along with the flow guy who never really realized the extent of the evils that were being taken place. And once he did, you know, not only did he sympathize with, you know, the, the Jews and the Romanians and all of that, but like, you know, would even try to sort of help them in his own ways. Um, and also there's a backstory where Warman and Comfler were soldiers in the war together and Warman actually saved Comfler's ass. And so Comfler oh, sort shit. of owes him his life. And but is also his superior. And so, like, there's a really interesting uh, dynamic between the two of them because of all of these different sort of forces at play and uh, who, you know, and Kampfler is basically in line for a promotion where he's, I think, going to be given Auschwitz if he goes and he handles this situation at the keep. So he's trying to solve this as soon as possible um, because they're going to make the promotion in seven days. And if he doesn't get this thing taken care of in a week, they're going to promote someone else, which is why he's like, we got to do this now. We got to do this now. You've got three days. Let's go. Let's go. Blah, 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 blah. Got it. Everything's given motivation. That would have given us a ticking clock of sorts. Exactly, dude. You know, Um, and then, like I said, you've got the professor. He starts out having this wonderful relationship with his daughter. Um, you know, it's the two of them and they support each other. And so then when Professor starts to be corrupted by Molisar, uh, you know, we sense their rift and the daughter kind of knows that something's going on. And, um, you know, she's trying to do her best to put up with how he's mistreating her because she knows that it's not him. Like, there's just so much going on Descent that did not make it to screen. Like and it's it, a great, great it. story. It's really awesome. Yeah. And, and like I said, Molisar is a dope character. The way that they play with the vampire like even even when people get killed it's not just off screen right like they show up and there's this like their and their necks like it's not just like two puncture wounds like their entire neck is ripped open and so they're like well we think it's vampires but vampires don't really rip their entire throats maybe it's like a new vampire or blah 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 so there's this mystery element where they don't really know what's going on and then we're charmed by molisar because uh, he he actually is given speaking lines and he's very principled, you know, and he talks about um, like he feigns being aghast at what the Nazis are doing and all this stuff. So kind of to your point, we're like, wow, the small star guy seems like he's kind of helpful. Um, so we get yeah, tricked along with so, the professor and there's there's a lot of good stuff in there, man. 
Let, let me ask you in the book when when Molasar shows up. Yeah. Um. Because when Mol- so our first introduction to Molasar as the villain, um, is you know a couple of Nazi soldiers that are greedy decide they're going to go back to look at these crosses to see if they're worth anything. Uh, they're looking for silver. Um, they're told that all the crosses are nickel. One of them, they go to peel off with their uh, knives and they realize that it's silver. Okay, let's take that. So they take a chunk out. So then we see Molsar, you know, gobble them up. And that's, he's a smoke monster, like what mm-hmm. you had said. All we see of him is like a fog that kind of rolls out and then light, their eyes light up. These Nazi soldiers' eyes light up and their soul is sucked out from the inside. Okay, yeah. great. Then the next time we see him uh, manifested, he's like a toxic avenger monster of sorts like he's yeah. got the muscular tissue and like a half tilted skull kind of um wait well, so to me he sort know, of looks like a like an evil golem from like jewish folklore okay so uh yeah and he's very charming um albeit you know mutated and horrifying looking in the book is that the way he's introduced or is he fully formed in a way that you could see some of these people going along with what he's saying because yeah he is good looking and deceptive like a dracula character would be so he's not uh, yeah i do uh he's not he's not really suave and debonair that's kind of the cool thing is he's actually like a lot more primal and savage um but he would be like a like the vibe that i got from him is like think like a like goth jason momoa kind of guy right or like but is he like like half formed and danzig like no so that's the thing so what it is what they're trying to convey through the way that they did this which by the way it gave me strong hellraiser vibes i feel like that's what they did is they're like oh you know this person is not fully formed and as he gets stronger you know he's becoming like a total person in the book he's completely fully formed but what it is is that he's weak because he doesn't have his talisman and so he basically um the thing is that like so there's this there's this also this concept they introduce where like human blood gives the same energy as a talisman so there is a world where and that's where the whole like vampires feeding on humans mythology evolved to like there's a world where he can technically like just be mad feeding on humans over and over and over to keep his power up and have enough strength but it would be like like he wouldn't have time to like go kill people like it would take all of his effort just to survive off of human blood whereas if he gets the God. talisman now he doesn't need to feed for his power or he only needs to feed every so often and he's getting most of his yep. power from the talisman so he's freed up to go do his evil shit. Yep. Makes total sense. Yeah. Uh this movie had none of that. Where <laughs> <laughs> Um where where I forget. Where did where did the talisman even come from in this film? How did Ian McKellen get to take possession of? Where was that? Was it? I don't. I don't recall. And to be honest, I'm trying to think. I don't exactly recall what the talisman was in the book either. Uh, Like what? Like what? He just kind of had it one day. Was it a necklace or something? Whatever. Whatever it was. Whatever the object was. The idea is that you know. Again, you know, thousands of years ago from when you know Molasar and Glaken first started feuding. Uh, Glaken was able to get the talisman, which is the source of Molasar's power, and, sure. and and take it away and go hide it and bury it somewhere never to be found again, right? Yeah. I, just I don't remember sure if it's a necklace itself. or a cross or what no, it is. I get that. Yeah. Ian McKellen um, just kind of showed up with it one day. He just kind of had it in this film. And it was like the hilt of that tube thing. Like it was a, I don't know, uh, uh 
this movie sucked, dude. I don't know. I'm done talking about it. <laughs> um, I got nothing. It does sound like a cool book. I, I understand the dilemma uh, that you're in right now because you're, you're oh. like, no, guys, really. It's a great story. Yeah, and I'm yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. this movie sucked. I, no, no, I, this did, isn't I, that. I, I, I appreciate <laughs> what this could have been. I wish this would have been the, those things, uh, but it was not those things. And uh, and this is a movie podcast, not a book book of the month yeah. club. So, so I did remember um, one other thing that translates, which is the crosses. So I'm I, I, I and again, it's not. I don't think it's one hundred percent this, but it's at least like seventy five to eighty percent. Um, which is that like so in the vampire mythology, one of the actual and valid things that ended up being true is Molisar's sensitivity to crosses. And so I, I want to say it was something where like he had, he eventually convinced like, you know, those three sons of the keeper that you're talking about. Yes. I'm pretty yes. sure Molisar convinced them over the years to basically like get rid of all the crosses. So like, uh, he's sensitive to crosses and he's sensitive to like the material, which is why Glaken had all of those crosses installed in the, in the keep to keep him there. Yes. And then if I remember correctly, Molisar has the three keepers sons swap out the crosses with different material. And then he has them file down the top cross down to a point that it's no longer a cross. And since oh, it's no longer a cross, it okay. doesn't have the na- the impact on him. They got rid of the headrest. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Basically. So, yeah, so basically, yeah, there becomes, <laughs> a, point, cross is having there a, becomes a point where we whittle this top down and a cross is no longer a cross. And whatever that point yeah. is, he convinced them to take it to that point so that he could do this long con job where down the road, everybody would think, you know, Glaken would show up thinking that the crosses are keeping him there. But ah, ha, ha, gotcha, bitch, because these aren't real crosses. So uh, if the crosses weren't keeping him there and the nickel was gone and whatnot, and these sons have done those things. Then why was Molisar hostage in the first? Like why couldn't he because just run out? Because he wasn't the, powerful enough. The, yeah, exactly. And the last he part of the his, talisman. The very last part of his plan before he could be freed upon the world is is just to get his talisman. Because once I have that, the Got crosses it. are taken care of. Everything else is taken care of. I bust the fuck out of here. I don't need to kill people. So, and he's and as Warman he's killing the German up, soldiers, he's getting a little bit stronger, which is why okay. he's able to influence the professor more because in killing the Nazis and feeding on their blood, he's still not powerful enough to leave. But again, he's a little bit more powerful. So his power, his powers of influence are a little more substantial each additional time he kills and feeds. So when the Nazis show up and, and Jürgen Flergenbergen is there with his <laughs> homies before Gabriel Byrne shows up as Kompfler, yeah. um, Molisar at that juncture is technically not, hostage he's just not powerful enough to go about his business he's just kind of chilling waiting biding his time more or less yeah exactly and they and they long play the kills so you know there's one or two people that are killed this night and then molisar gets a little bit more powerful and then he kills one right. or two people more the next night and then he meets the professor and then he doesn't so kill when the nazis show up night, it's like so fodder then, yeah so the soldiers think it's like taken care of but then he kills again the next Got night it. and they don't know Molisar's right. there to, to them these the, these German officers like their soldiers are getting killed by an unseen evil and right. you know they've 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 swept the place they've done all of this they can't find anybody like so 
you know, like they're also starting to come to terms with the fact that they might be dealing with something supernatural, which is not the way that they think, but they can't really make heads or tails of what else might be going on. And then they think it's like a subversive plot by the Jews that are like sneaking in at night. And uh, again, there's just there's so, so much of the story that's not here. Do they know? Do the Germans know um, why they're there in the first place? Yes. So basically, uh, this is a German stronghold in Romania, but nobody they don't really know why they're tasked there. Uh, it's it's something that they own. But there's a lot of questions because it's like, why are we asked to, like, come here to this remote keep? Like, it's so far okay. away from everything else. Like, there must be all. I had assumed this was like, um, you know, there's all the stories and, and, and stuff about Hitler seeking out supernatural things like, you know, of course, oh, yeah. uh, Holy Grail, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the whole Indiana Jones saga is all based on that sort of thing. Right. Mm. And so um, that was my take on it was just that, OK, this is Hitler's pursuit of harnessing some greater force so that he can, you know, throttle it and use it for his own purposes in some way, shape or form. And, and of course it goes wrong and you can't throttle the ultimate evil. You can't saddle it. And, um, you know, it goes out of hand off the rails, but yeah, yeah now that no, you there's like a, things, there's a, there's a strategic reason. I, I think it's one of those things okay. where it's like th this, this keep is super obscure, but it's like the only stronghold on this one obscure path. Right. So it's like, yeah. Like more than likely an army couldn't, you know, it's too treacherous, but we have to make sure it's monitored because it's still there. It's a, yeah, like it's a, a positioning point. Right. Yeah, exactly. Makes total so sense. we're not going to like throw all our resources, but we are going to send one or two people down there to just kind of keep it in check. Again, though, not in the movie. <laughs> no, <none of> this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Yeah. I was just trying to fill in the, some of the gaps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To take me down that no, road. Again, so, uh, 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 yeah. For everyone listening, if there's one takeaway, it's skip the movie and read the book, The Keep. Yeah. Or, <laughs> you know, you just kind of listen to Jason tell it. And so, I yeah. Think he or did. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I read it so you don't have to. <laughs> yep. But that's I'm it. your own the personal keep. spark notes, people. Ta da. Yay. Yes. And that's The Keep, like we said. So, uh, not only is that The Keep, Ryan. That's fucking season two of Esoterica Cinema. Holy shit. I know, buddy. Crazy, I'm going to miss you so much. Because, uh, you know, for everyone out there, Jason and I totally ignore each other when the season's not going on. <laughs> We're not fuck friends you, buddy. in real life at all. Uh, <laughs> fuck you, buddy. <laughs> I hate you, guy. Um, yeah, so, well, you know, before we, I mean, yeah, we'll do a little send off here. But beforehand, we still got to formalize some things here, not the least of which is our three adjectives. As always, I'm going to let you go first, bud. What you got? We'll just get through this here. Keep it short. Uh, disjointed, because it was um, potential, because I thought this movie did have potential. There is a good version, or good is a strong word. Uh, there is a version <laughs> of this movie that I would appreciate. Uh, this was not it. Um, decent ingredients, bad entree. I think that uh, <laughs> this is, you know, uh, a lot of things you find in the kitchen that on their own I would like, but all put together in a stew turned out terrible. Um, so, yeah. Like vinegar and peanut butter and here's some chocolate and here's some water and here's some wine and yeah, beef and chicken. It's like, whoa, that's a lot of on their own good things. You threw them all in a pot and turned it on high and burnt <laughs> the shit out of it. And that's what we're left with. So, and, but, uh, you know, for, in all fairness, Michael Mann agrees with me. Yeah, uh, he if, if he were to film. come on this show, he'd be like, no, that, 
you know, yeah, no, you guys are right. That movie's a turd sandwich. Uh, I hope you don't judge me on it. <laughs> Dude, I'll take it we further. Don't. He disowned the film. So we would say, Michael Mann, yes. what do you think about the keep? And he would be like, what's the keep? Right. Yes. They, there have been interviews about his whole movie, uh, career that have just sidestepped this altogether. Yes, <laughs> correct. Yeah, absolutely. Uh yeah, I'll go ahead and uh give mine here and again not expound on them too much. First one is rushed, then for obvious reasons. Second one is overzealous, just bit off way more than it can chew. And the third is disappointing. Again, I've read the book. I know how awesome this story is. It's epic. It's huge. It's unwieldy. It's ambitious. It's bloated. It's all of these things, but it's a good goddamn story. And motivations are there, and the characters are interesting, and the power struggles and the dynamics, and all of it. It's a really, really, really great book, and it... I think I think that there is an awesome movie to be made from that book. I don't think I mean the book was written I think the year I was born in 83 or so. Um so I doubt, you know, all of a sudden like 30 years later. But I mean, you know, they just did do that uh Foundation show which is based off Isaac Asimov from the 50s, if not the 40s. So, I suppose they could, but um yeah, again, disappointing because this is a cool story and I really do think that there's a great version a great movie to be made from this book. And this certainly was not it. So Ryan formalize this bitch. What are you giving it for a great rating? We're finishing season two off with a big old D I'm giving it a D. <laughs> yes. Unfortunately not, not finishing with big double D's, but a big single D for this film, yes. which sucks. It's not cool. Uh, yeah, not I think, cool. I think I got about the same, uh, star rating of two out of five stars. Just holy, uh, I, I mean, a cup, you know, a star here and there for like being, you know, you actually managed to get some stuff on celluloid. A uh, couple of your shots look decent. The acting was fine. Like none of the actors did yeah. a poor job. Like they all did good with what they had. And, and just, in all fairness, uh, in defense of the studio itself, at least it was short. Uh, hour and 30 <laughs> minutes went by pretty quickly. Uh, even though I was confused, I still had my night free. So, hey, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. On some, thanks, Paramount. Man, I, we got to stop. Man. So, okay. Season one, we went out on Willy's Wonderland, which was better than this for sure. But neither of us loved. I think we gave it about C3 stars right around that range. And it just sucks, yeah. dude, because we're coming off so many fucking bangers, dude. Like I the know, last like six, eight, ten films have all just been rock star status. And it's just really unfortunate that we had to go out with the keep. And, you know, it, it was even fitting, too, because we've done a lot of sci-fi and horror this season. So, you know, it, it trended with that. It would have been a nice little cap off. And uh, but hopefully hopefully it was still entertaining to hear. Hopefully uh, you guys got a sense of what the film could be, you know, from the book and how the source material is actually really interesting. And there's a lot of good stuff there. But, yeah, man, this film was uh, an unfortunate one to go out on. But so it goes, man. When you uh, live or die by a spin of the wheel, that's how it goes. Yep. That's the deal. Can't be winners <laughs> all the time. Um, but hopefully we could regroup and dust ourselves off for an eventual season three. Uh, we got a lot of great films still on our list to go. I have no intention of slowing down or shutting up. Um, pretty excited <laughs> to get some of those, get to some of those. Uh, and, uh, I think we're going to go do some short form content. Jason, do you want to talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so uh, we also just finalized our uh, master list of the films for season three. And man, that is just such a fire list, dude. There, uh, you know, we replaced the 20 films that we watched. And then there were a couple also that just for whatever reason, seemed like they might not lend itself to as great a discussion. So I uh, got a few uh, other good ones in there for us. But uh, yeah, you know, we're uh, for season three. It's it's always a random selection. We have no idea what of the films we're going to get selected. But uh, we decided to largely include a lot of sort of auteur films in our list now. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, you know, Coen brothers and Paul Thomas Anderson and some Kubrick and uh, some James Gunn and just a lot of... Uh, you know, why, why am I drawing a blank on the guy who directed Seven? Fincher, David Fincher. Made sure to get some of his in there, too. So a lot of those guys that, like, you know, Ryan, you and I sort of grew up on, West Anderson. Uh, these were all the guys that were really making names for themselves when we were passionately into film to the point that we decided we wanted to make a career of it and go to film school. One of us that worked out for <laughs> but yeah, so, and then, like I said, you know, but it's still a random selection. None of those films could get selected. It's all the wheel of chance. So, but it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, as Ryan mentioned, we're having a lot of short form content that we're going to be coming out with. So one of the things that we're going to introduce, one of the features is uh, five minute reviews. And those are probably coming more closer to the uh, seven, eight, 10 minute range. If you know how long winded Ryan and I are, but yeah, uh, during the off season, we're going to go ahead and introduce those. We've already got a couple going and we have a couple more almost finished for you. And we'll be coming out with those at least every week. In the off season, uh, so there's still new Esoterica Cinema content that will be released in between season two and season three. So make sure not to unsubscribe. Don't un uh, don't unselect that follow button. Stick around. You're gonna be seeing some cool stuff come through. We're also gonna try to incorporate some bonus features, like you guys heard on the bonus episodes, and really just sort of do those on their own. Ryan, I really liked a lot of what we did for the bonus episodes. The episodes themselves got a little unwieldy, and um, I think that just didn't quite come together the way that I wanted to, but there's some really, really fun stuff that we did in there. I loved the conversation we had with Cam from Green Shirt about Evil Dead. I loved the debate that we did from the guys at Repeat Viewing about uh, relitigating Dale and Tucker and Dale, rather. Um, so, you know, if we can sort of do those just as one-offs and release those uh, in and of themselves. Basically what I'm saying is expect a lot of bonus content uh, between now and season three. And then when season three resumes as well, one of the things we're going to do is we're actually going to go back to bi-weekly releases. Um, and that's just for no other reason than we know that the episodes can be a little meaty at times. And uh, a lot of our listeners just don't have time to be doing these giant 90 to 120 minute episodes every single week on top of the other podcasts and mediums that they have to consume. So we're going to go ahead and uh, move those back to every other week, give you guys a little bit more time to listen to them as well as stretch out the season twice as long. And then that's going to give us plenty of opportunities to be sneaking in those five to 10 minute reviews, those bonus features. So, and then of course the sketches are not going anywhere. We will still have 20 brand new sketches for you in season three. Uh, and who knows, Ryan, maybe we'll even do a, maybe we'll do one or two non-film related sketches uh, in the off season. Uh, maybe we got something brewing there. No promises, but let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. All of that to say, guys, that uh, we really appreciate you sticking around and being with us here for season two of Esoterica Cinema. We love watching these movies. We love talking to you guys about them. It's been really encouraging to see 
the response from people to see the growth that we've gotten. Uh, we're going worldwide, man. Uh, so, you know, uh, to any of our listeners in the U.S., uh, yeah, we've got listeners over there in Germany and in the U.K. We got people in China. We got people in Russia, Australia, and Brazil's blowing up right now. So really getting a lot of uh, unique listenership, and I think that a large part of that is because we do look at so many different films, you know? Um, I, I don't know how many film podcasts there are out there that are going to look at Films from all of the countries that I just mentioned. We've done films from China. We've done films from Russia. We've done films from France. We've done films out of Germany. We've done English films. And then, of course, we have our U.S. films. So when you look at our slate, there are a number of countries represented. And I feel like that's a large part of why we do have that success. So to everybody all across the world who tunes in, we appreciate it so much. Um, please continue to tell people about us, and uh, if you dig what we're doing, um, don't be afraid to tell them about the comedy sketches. I know there are, just from the numbers, I know some people just come for the comedy sketches and bail. There are people that don't like the comedy sketches and just come for the discussion, and then uh, we've got our people that enjoy both of them. So whatever it is, hopefully we're giving you a little something to chew on that brings a little bit of enjoyment to your day, a little bit of insight on a film, and and largely what I hope more than anything else is I hope that we're just exposing you guys to a lot of media properties, uh, specifically with movies, um, but also with these books and other stuff that comes up that you just wouldn't have heard otherwise, you know? Uh, everybody can, you know, all podcasts are out there to tell you about all of the huge, you know, director films from, you know, Pulp Fiction and Blade Runner and all these movies that everyone knows, Saving Private Ryan, but uh, I don't know how many podcasts are out there talking about Dagon and Buffalo 66, so hopefully we brought some films to your attention that you would not have otherwise known about, and hopefully you enjoyed them. And if you didn't enjoy them, at least you enjoyed being exposed to them and seeing how subjective art can be and how artists have different interpretations of material and telling stories. And I just love film so much, and I hope you guys do too. And Ryan, also as well, just doing this with you, man. I love hanging out with you. Uh, I love watching films and talking about with you, man. It's uh, one of the one of the more fun things that I have to look forward to week in and week out. So we will definitely keep that going. And uh, thanks for doing this with me, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, dude. Um, Going to be a part of this. And uh, yeah, like I said, it'll just be kind of a break to regroup. Uh, this is my busy season at work. So we're going to get past that. And then uh, we're looking forward to getting back to it. Uh, this is not something I want to step away from for too long. Uh, if nothing else, I miss making a total ass out of myself with these comedy sketches. So I definitely <laughs> expect some of that <laughs> in the very near future in some way, shape, or form. 100%. 100%. So, yeah, that's it for season two, guys. Thank you so much for sticking around. You guys make it worth it. And uh, stay tuned for our very last comedy sketch of the season. Hopefully it's a good one for you. And we will see you next season on Esoterica Cinema. Every so often, a film comes along so bafflingly illogical that the only way to appropriately honor it is by way of a $50 Blu-ray that will be purchased solely by hardcore nerds. Presenting the two-disc 38th anniversary special edition of Michael Mann's classic head-scratcher, The Keep. Featuring a director-approved 4K transfer, caffeine pills to help you stay awake, and over 16 hours of bonus content. 
Paramount Pictures is proud to give you an inside look at the making of this nonsensical adaptation. Please sit back and enjoy these original, never-before-seen audition tapes for Michael Mann's The Keep. Okay, everyone, we just got word that the script is locked down, so today we'll be performing dialogue from the actual screenplay. First up, reading for the part of Dr. Kuza, we have Owen Wilson. Oh, wow, see, I don't know what this is, and I don't care. He's like a hammer. He can help smash them. What are you talking about? We're dealing with a golem, a devil. A devil? Oh, wow. See, you listen to me. The devil in the keep wears a black uniform and has a death's head in his cap and calls himself a strumb... strumbon... Wow, this is a hard one, man. A strumbon Fuhrer? Next up, reading for the part of Major Kampfer, Jack Nicholson. Don't you talk to me about courage. Were you with the German anti-fascists fighting us in Spain? No, you weren't, were ya? Did you stop the Einsatzkommando at Poznan? No, you weren't. You have the debilitating German disease, Warman. Sentimental talk. How many times in this keep have you wet your bed? Look, can we wrap this up? I got a Lakers game in 30 minutes to see Magic Johnson, and if you could believe, Kurt Rambis left his glasses at my house. For the role of Glaken, Macho Man Randy Savage. Where do you come from? I am a traveler. From where? Everywhere. Go to sleep. And dream. For the role of Captain Warman, here's Werner Herzog. Soldier, what is your assignment? To string lights, sir. Then what the hell are you doing? Answer. The silver crosses, sir. There's talk among the men. They hide silver here. Private Lutz, uh, it has been a profitable day for you. Not only have you learned the crosses are made from nickel, not silver, uh, but you have earned a place for yourself on the first watch all day. Also reading for Warman, Sebastian the Crab. It's a psychotic fantasy to escape the weakness and disease that you sense in the core of your souls. You have scooped the most diseased psyches out of the German gutter. You have released the foulness that dwells in all men's minds. And finally, reading for Molisar is Woody Allen. My people are murdered? Who, who does this? Their leader in Berlin and the soldiers in black. Which one? Well, I will destroy them. I, I will consume their lives. Paramount Pictures proudly presents The Keep, 38th Anniversary Special Edition. Accepting pre-orders now. Do not wait.